This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, hello. I'm Rob Wolf with New Books and Science Fiction, the Let's Face It episode. It's a bit ironic that a podcast is an audio experience rather than also video or a visual experience because my guest today has written a book that's all about image. It feels familiar to our lives today, I think, because so many of us curate our identities on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and I know there are a gazillion other platforms out there depending on your age or interests or how hip you are. But in Joma West's debut novel, Face, things are so much worse. The combination of skill and privilege needed to climb the social ladder is like doing TikTok all day on steroids. And the novel is about a lot of other things, too. Parenthood and being an adolescent. It's about intimacy and emotions and nature versus nurture and the indomitable need for the rich to dominate and suck the life out of everyone else. Joma West is a third culture writer whose work straddles both fantasy and science fiction, and I am so happy to have her join me from her home in Glasgow to talk about Face. Welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Face is, of course, the title of your book, Mm -hmm. but the word face has a special meaning in your story. It's kind of like what we mean when we say maybe saving face or putting on a brave face in the sense that it's about your public image. But the word is really a lot deeper and more complicated than that. So I thought that might be a great way to start if you could just explain what the term face means in the world you've created in this novel. It's a good question because I think even I don't fully know the depths of it in the context of their world because even when I was writing it, I felt like I was still at the top of the iceberg with the depth of all of that and I felt like there was stuff that was happening under the surface but yeah it's it's both a game a way of life a survival mechanism it's essentially everything that you are when you're playing I mean that is if you're if you're on the hierarchy it's like so if you're a menial obviously you have no face so it doesn't matter but if you're someone on the social 
ladder of any kind. Your face is everything. And it is what ensures that you are at the level that you're at. And it also ensures how you climb the ladder as well. One of the really interesting things, I think, about the concept is that it isn't just about how you look on, say, the Instagram equivalent. It's how you interact with everyone in your life. So it, mm. there isn't a moment, it seems, except for those rare times where people are not plugged into the Internet or the in, as, they, as the characters call it in your story, where they're ever relaxed and no one even they're so used to being plugged in that they, they don't even have those times to themselves hardly i mean it really permeates everything and it really struck me how you showed its effect on different relationships so i thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the idea of parenthood mm-hmm. and parent-child relationships there's a there's a character vidya and her job and her status in society really says a lot about the world you've created. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about her. Who is Vidya? What's her job? So she is part of, well, she's the head of the most famous boutique baby making or baby designing shop in in this world. So everyone that's anyone wants her to design their baby. And designing a baby means sort of looking for the right genetic material and trying to create something sort of organically. I want to put air quotes around that because they don't make them just by matching genetic material and making it in a test tube. It is actually like inseminating a person. And and so you're never really sure what you're going to get. So you need to have a lot of skill and artistry when you're trying to create this perfect thing that when it's born, you're never going to know what's going to happen in the womb, as it were. So that's where her artistry comes in. It's funny because she was a late character, like she was a character, but she was a a late chapter. Like I I didn't write the chapter initially. So I didn't see her point of view until quite late on in the story. Yeah, so she's in charge of all of that. But she has a kind of attitude to everything that she's above it all. Like she doesn't want to do that. She doesn't have to do that. She's too important to need all of these things that make you look good. She doesn't need a baby for as an accessory because she designs everyone else's. Of course, she's better. She's better than them. Yeah, and she has this habit of going, I forget how it's phrased, but let's not do face, you know, when people are speaking to her. She's so above it that she can be candid, presumably, if she's really being candid, and expect other people to be the same. And people are just thrown by that because they're so not used to relating to other people that way. Yeah. I like the idea that she encourages people to be candid, but her telling people to sort of get rid of the games or the face playing is... A game in itself she's she's playing with them and it's it's a way to put them on the back foot it's a way to put them below her and things like that so even if she thinks that she's above it all she's still engaging in the game that's one thing everyone seems to be doing is thinking how to take advantage of the moment in any conversation even to the point of a slight facial expression of disdain or something and then they're sort of rejoice in their head oh i have the upper hand right now at this point in the conversation because of the face i just made or the expression yeah children in this world are accessories essentially it was really impactful to be reading about people talking about creating a baby like they're customizing a piece of furniture Mm. Does the baby literally match them physically? Oh, no, contrasts are in. We need a baby that's a different skin color. That's the absolute opposite. And talking about personality and eye color, 
a friend of mine had two black cats, and he said he got them from some people who got rid of their cats because they changed their furniture in their home, and the cats didn't match anymore. <laughs> that was a long time ago. But I was reading that, and I thought, I thought it was... I mean, it was it was insane for cats. <laughs> but that's that sounds like what this I can imagine a couple going, oh, the baby didn't it doesn't work out, you know, and they can return it. You never actually address that. But it but yeah. they treat a baby like a commodity in every way. Shit, I could not imagine doing that with a pet. <laughs> that's insane. Completely, completely insane. I guess I wanted to explore a little bit how when you live in a world where children are considered an accessory and a tool for building face or moving up the ladder, as they say, what does that do to people's relationships, especially the parent-child relationship? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Is I think because also no one is carrying their own child to term and things like that, they don't build that uh, relationship in the nine months it's, it's essentially they're farming it out to someone else and they don't get updates for anything they're just sort of told oh, it, it's happening you can expect the due dates sort of around then uh, we'll let you know when they go into labor so so they don't need to think about it the whole time so already they're not building that relationship up they're not really I mean unless you know they're making preparations for a space in their house but even then they would be thinking about that aesthetically like how's this room gonna look oh we need to get a dry nurse in who's gonna like feed the baby and stuff like that and yeah so it's it's very distant from them and then of course being brought up with that same distance you also won't want the same kind of attachment as it were you won't grow up with that attachment so yeah it's 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 a strange one yeah, it, it makes sense that at least with the kids that we see, Naomi and um, Raina, they have absolutely no friendly feelings when it comes to their parents. It is very much just we happen to live in the same place and we happen to have to do certain things because of our relationship. That's it. Yeah, I do want to talk about Naomi and Raina in, in a bit or Naomi in particular. Uh, but before we get to that, I, I also just wanted there's so many aspects to this world where people are, their alienation is underscored in so many different ways. And there's also this cultural disgust with touch. Mm. So that even to the point that when this couple that you you follow, Eduardo and Tanya, have a baby through this surrogate stud, you know, ordering one through Vidya, when Eduardo picks it up, it's it's in a plastic sleeve. It's in like some kind of a transparent plastic sleeve so he can hold it, but he doesn't actually have to have skin-on-skin -skin contact. And mm -hmm. and actually, I mean, interestingly, this sort of reminds me of this notion of, you know, I guess Victorian dresses or, or where a woman, if she sh because their bodies are so covered, if they just showed their ankle, it was very provocative and arousing. Well, there's only actual, mm -hmm. actually two moments, if I'm not mistaken, and we don't really need to go into them in the book because they're so important. I don't want to ruin the book, but there's two moments in the mm -hmm. book where I think there's skin-on-skin -skin contact, and it's like revelatory and so important to the story because it's so forbidden. So I know I, I don't mm -hmm. want to be talking so much, but how, how did this fear, how did you envision this fear emerging or this disgust with touching each other emerge in the world? And how does that contribute to this, this feeling of isolation? So the idea came from, I was having a conversation with a friend who said that they were kind of disgusted by 
how media was pushing sex at them all the time. They were just seeing so much stuff that just made them almost feel like they wanted to shrink inside and just not go there. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What if we took that further? And, you know, I've been reading a lot of Le Guin at the time and she does it brilliantly where she'll like ask a what if question and then explore it in, in a really fascinating way. And I thought that was a nice way to start a story is just to ask a simple question. What if people don't touch each other? How would that affect them? What would become important when you no longer are driven by that desire for physical connection? And how would you have babies in a world like that as well? So I wrote a short story, which was about Tonya. Uh, and that became like the first proper chapter of, of Face. And I just really wanted to explore what a couple who, who doesn't touch and are in a society that doesn't touch, how they would have a baby. And, and then it just grew arms and legs from there. And yeah, I don't think that I'd really quite understood what I had when I started. It really just grew in depth as I was working on it. Well, there's this very sad moment when I want to say Tanya, Tonya, Tanya. Tanya. She feels drawn to Eduardo. There's a moment where it sounds like she wants to hug him or she has this urge and she doesn't quite understand it. And then this reflex kicks in and she just gets nauseous and throws up. She runs to the bathroom and throws up at the thought of it. And there's this push-pull where it sounds like there's a recognition in the story that there's something natural about touching Mm. and yet because people have become so alienated from it, they're making themselves physically sick. They've told mm. themselves a story that they now believe and they that they can't touch, and it's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And I really wanted to have a moment like that. I really felt like Tonya loves Eduardo. I, I wanted that to be clear, that there was a genuine affection in their relationship, because a lot of the relationships in the story are just for face. They are just for what you can gain. There's not necessarily love or respect in them. But I felt Tonya and Eduardo are different from Skylar and Madeline, which is they they definitely don't love each other. And I wanted to show that there was genuine affection there, even if it doesn't. Yeah, I don't want to say any more than that about their relationship, to be honest. But yeah, I wanted it to be clear that they loved each other. Can we talk a little bit just about what perspective you bring to the story? I mean, you've, you've described yourself as a third culture writer. I wonder how that informs your work. And maybe maybe you could also just define what third culture means, third culture kid or third culture writer means. Yeah. So my father is British and my mother is Kenyan Indian. And I grew up moving around Africa because of my dad's job. And so... There's a sort of nomad kind of lifestyle there, which means like when people ask you, where's your hometown or where did you grow up? I don't have that. Uh, Home was always just where my parents were. So I think that sort of displacement has definitely given a flavor to a lot of my stories that everything sort of, I think even in all of my writing, I write places that aren't real places, but you can sort of connect with them from the emotional character level. I find it difficult to write places, to go into descriptions and things like that. I'm very character-driven and place is always an afterthought. And I think that that's very much from my upbringing. I was wondering this whole, the idea that we were just talking about, about being afraid to touch. I was thinking how cultures have such different senses of body space, 
uh, mm. touching. I mean, in some cultures, you may see male friends holding hands. And because homosexuality is so uh, not accepted, it doesn't even occur to anyone that it means that. And they and it allows like a greater physical intimacy in a yeah. way in public that it might in other places where there's more tension around it or just sense of space. You know, some people and individuals mm. have that too. Like, oh, you're standing so close to me, but someone, they're just some people I know. I have some friends who just get really close to people like they don't know, you know, they have yeah. a different sense. So I was, I was just thinking about that too, about how that can vary from culture to culture. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think just on a personal note, I have a very wide sphere of you're invading my space <laughs> so I think it it kind of does sort of gel personally I know um my best friend when he read it was like oh my god this is just you you hate touching people <laughs> you, you hate them coming near you <laughs> and yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that definitely sat fine with me. I was like, yeah, I could I could live in a world where there's no physical touch. Maybe people will start wearing those plastic sheaths and, you, you know, you could start <laughs> yeah. a fashion. You could start wearing one. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe even then, I think that that actually disturbs me quite a bit when they go clubbing and they're all wearing... Um, these sort of skin tight plastic suits that allow them to get so close that it's almost obscene. And that just like gives me the ick. I'm like, oh, I'd rather just stay at home and read a book on my own. <laughs> I don't want to get near anyone. It sounds very hot. You didn't really go into the science of it, <laughs> if it actually breathes or if you can sweat through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it's very soft science fiction. <laughs> Got no problem. It was totally believable as I was reading it. I just was wondering. I was like, Ugh, I, I, I just, I just felt wet just from the sweat being trapped inside. My yeah, imagining I that. I think, um, yeah, that was definitely. I was thinking about that as well and the discomfort. Um, there is a character uh, in the book that gets blackmailed, and it never goes into the details of why or what it is that he's being blackmailed for, but. My backstory for him was that he really liked touching the sweat that gathers in people's suits after nights like that, or he liked getting into them maybe and feeling people's sweat. That was the backstory. So I had been thinking about that. It's, it's gross. That is gross. Yes, but it's brilliant. It's perfect for the world, though. It's like a perfect kink that someone might it's have. A, it's a real fetish. Yeah. yeah. So... There's a, quite a few point-of-view characters, but there's a primary uh, storyline involving a character known as a menial. And you referenced menials a little earlier, and I guess listeners can tell from the term probably what that role entails. Although it's, it's very specific in, in your world, there are specific kind of, I, I would go so far as to say, you know, virtually enslaved person without rights, although maybe that's not technically legally the, their status, but it's, it seems virtually that way. So... Before I go on and malign exactly what a menial is, maybe you could talk a little bit about what it is and what who, who they are, who are menials, and then we could talk a little bit about this character, a menial, and a, they're normally just live by having numbers, but this menial, as many of them do, have he has given himself a name, Jake, so we can refer to him as Jake. As Jake, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think there are enslaved people, but I think that people in world don't genuinely look at them like that. They're just like, well, they're tools, they're servants, they're, they're just a part of the landscape. And when you get so used to something or you grow up with something, it's really hard to question that unless someone points it out. It's like those privileges that people have that they don't notice. And it's only when people go, well, actually... And the menials, because they are 
raised in such a way, they don't question it either. And I think they're specifically designed not to be rebellious, not to think. And they're also specifically designed to give out after a certain period of service. So that really just like cuts any potential problems out so so people don't even have the time to question it also they run through them so quickly like you were talking about the the whole changing your cats to suit your uh your furniture they would change their menials to suit their furniture for sure if it suddenly wasn't the right aesthetic then they would trade it in so yeah i'd call them a slave class why did you want to include that in this story? Like, what's going through your mind when you add that dimension to the story? Most of the story is the perspective of the very, like, privileged, the the people that can actually afford to have menials. Because I think having human beings that you, you buy and sell, I think that would be an incredibly expensive commodity. So, so there's only a certain amount of people that could pay for the privilege. And also, you'd want that. You'd want scarcity to make it so that people are striving for something. So I wanted to deal with the upper class and to see how they treat people. And it just seemed like a no-brainer that you would have to have the opposite of that as a way to critique it. It's interesting, even the middle class, there's a character who's a teacher. Everyone wants a menial, but he has to share one with his neighbors. There's one for their building or their flat. or mm, yeah. And there's this moment, which I think is very telling, where Shiler, or Skyler, depending on, I guess, which side of the ocean you're on, uh, but he's sort of at the pinnacle, right? He has got the most face anyone could have, it seems, you know, he and his wife. And he looks at Jake, because Jake is his family's menial. And I say his, I feel like I'm buying into it by saying that it's, you know, is the is the person he has yeah. enslaved. And he has this moment of what seems like envy, and it seems both so condescending and so blind and also so sad, but he registers that Jake is not conscious of his expressions or is not moderate or not regulating them with the expertise, I guess, that someone who's mm. like Skylar is able to do. And, he, and he, he says, you know, it's special. Being free with your expressions, it's, it's just being free. And of course, Jake, in 99.9% .9 of his life, he is not free in any way, shape or form. I mean, he's programmed mm -hmm. to, literally his genetics are programmed to die at a very young age. And yet, in this kind of arrogant way, or this way that really speaks to how trapped, in a way, Skylar feels by these rules. I don't know. I don't know what it means. Maybe you could say something about that, or maybe we don't need to say anything more. Yeah. No, I, uh, I'm i really glad you picked up on that moment. I don't know how much thought I was giving it at the time, but hearing you relate it there, I was like, damn, that's like exactly what people with privilege can be like at times. And it's it's really frightening when they're sort of completely denying all of the comforts that they have and are like, well, you're lucky. You don't have to worry about this. And it's like, no, because I have to worry about legitimate problems. <laughs> I have to worry about my facial expression. I have to worry about survival. Uh, I have to worry that I get things to you on time so that you don't get rid of me so that I can continue living in this place. And yeah, I don't think I had properly realized what I was doing at the time when I wrote that. Yeah, I think I, I kind of lucked into that, to be honest. Well, and if I remember right, Jake's reaction is what? 
what are you talking about? You know, like, because it really is so, it's so not the meaning of free to him and and Mm. in a very basic way. So this kind of leads into the storyline with Naomi, who's Skylar's daughter, and she takes an interest in menials. And she has this moment where her eyes are suddenly open to the fact that it's so basic, but she realizes that they're human beings. It's like it's like as if that were a revelation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really speaks to the world she's been brought up in. And she wants to do a school project on it. I mean, here she's had daily contact with Jake or some menial her whole life, but she can't even communicate with them. Like, she wants to do research on them, but she can't talk to Jake because they never talk. And I think at, at some point they, they exchange a few words finally. But uh, she has to find another way to learn about them. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about that, because that seems like the flip side, the unfaced side of this world, where there, there are these people who play the role of confessor. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's like a confessional booths on the internet that they can go into where people can vent their feelings. I think there are rooms that you can hire out where you smash a bunch of furniture and it's it's that kind of vibe where it's when your emotions reach a certain pitch because you can't let them go because you'd lose face if you did that. You can do it on the internet and you can do it behind an avatar. And it's also just a way to talk through your problems and uh, whatever's bothering you. And a lot of menials find that they do this because they have no idea about their lives and where they what they are really they're they're sort of working through all of this with very little information about what it is to be a person it's like an example is girls that aren't told about periods and then suddenly they get one and it's like oh my god I'm gonna die I'm bleeding that's what it's kind of like for menials they're not given basic information about their own biology so they freak out when things happen you know when they get excited by something or aroused by something it's scary and so the first place or the only place they can go is the internet and these confessionals are meant to be safe spaces for people to discuss those things so that's how Naomi decides to do her research she goes into a confessional she becomes a confessor so she can listen to people's confessions and they can be from any walk of life but some of them are menials and because of the way that people interact she can usually tell who's a menial and who's not and uh, and so that's how she gathers her research although you don't actually see her doing much uh, actual work she's just uh, talking to people <laughs> This brings me to the structure of the book, the way you've written it. What makes it so powerful is you're looking at the same scenes, but because people's worlds are so tightly held, so we see it from Naomi's perspective. And then later, we're going through the timeline of Skylar, her father, and then we see the same scene, we realize, but it's from his perspective. And there's so much drama, even if it's what might otherwise be classified as a relatively mundane conversation. I mean, Naomi and Raina, her sister, are such obnoxious. I say obnoxious, but I also have compassion for them because they were raised in in plastic sheaths yeah. and never touched by their parents. So why wouldn't they be <laughs> little shits to their parents? Yeah. People who, are, who have great parents go through that phase, you know, that development. But you realize how 
much is at stake and how much effort is put into every conversation when you go around the room and you're in everyone else's head. And you also realize that however good the characters think they are at manipulating their external presentation, people are actually reading something else. They think they've done X, Y, Z, but then someone else interprets it a different way. And it's just like the saddest thing because there's so many misfires where you feel like if only they were honest with each other, they would go, oh, wow, we could really get along. I I could love you if they just knew how to love. So can we talk about that structure? I guess it's the scenes with the most characters in them probably are done the most times, so we kind of go through them. But they do feel different each time you read them, which is really fascinating. So I wondered why you decided to do it that way and how you went about doing that yeah uh firstly i want to say i'm really glad that they felt different to you because like that's one of the major critiques a lot of people have is that it's a bit repetitive so it's very nice when i hear someone say they felt different like my thank god (laughs) who's trying so hard the dialogue is fascinating anyway like the scenes they're so tight and so good because the literally the words i don't think change although they might once in a while they might get each other's words wrong even but but it's just so good so even the even the one part that doesn't change is the actual words they say usually but even that's so good that it's a pleasure to go through it again and and get a new meaning from it oh thank you yeah no um i try to keep the words the same most of the time every so often i do change it a little bit which was something that my my father wanted me to do he was like no one ever remembers anything specifically exactly the same and I was like yeah but in this world they do (laughs) but he was right as well sometimes a, a shift in your memory of something can really change how you remember it and completely just a change of word but I think the main reason why I went for different perspectives I mean because I started off writing Tonya and then I didn't touch the story again for years and then I was writing a short story for a competition and I sort of wanted to set it in a similar world and I thought oh why not just take a name from Tonya's story and work with that and so I took Raina and and then I thought oh well Raina would be interacting with all these other people that were in Tonya's story as well because she's their daughter so I created this conversation between Raina and Skylar which is sort of the beginning of Raina's chapter and where things fall apart for her and then again I, I just stopped at the end of that conversation left it alone didn't touch the story again for a couple of years and then Later on, I was thinking about it more and how it could be interesting to just see what happens if I sort of rotated around Tonya and Eduardo's choice to have a child and what's happening around with all of the people in their lives as this happens and how their decision might affect the other people and how their actions might affect someone else and stuff like that. So that's where the perspective came from. And I think part of that was also because I like writing short stories or I had been more of a short story writer at the time that it was a way for me to write almost like a collection without writing a collection. Cause also when you're starting out writing and you're trying to sell a novel, everyone always tells you no one buys short story collections. <laughs> So it was a way for me to write a novel in a short story manner. 
ooh, there's some kind of parallel there between the world of face where it looks like a novel, but it's really underneath. This is what's going on. I could totally see how it would weave together that way. How many of the scenes probably could stand alone as a short story, but because each one is adding new information to something you already know, it builds together very seamlessly. So it works as a novel, even if I suppose some of those vignettes and scenes could stand alone or some of the character trajectories could maybe be their own story. Mm. I I still think Tonya's chapter is the only one that really stands as their own short story. And I think that's because Tonya and Eduardo were not part of Skylar's family. So they have their own journey. And there were a couple characters who you, if I'm not mistaken, did not do a point of view from. Yeah. Yeah. And is there any particular reason that stands out? You just ran out of time or, or because you wanted to keep them mysteries or? I think initially I maybe wanted to keep them mysteries. Um, so Eduardo and Madeline are the two like main ones that they don't get chapters. And I think that because they are essentially one half of the Tonya and Skylar thing, I felt like they didn't need chapters because Tonya and Skylar were doing that heavy lifting and it might have been too repetitive to get their side. It, it might have been too much. But also, um, particularly with Madeline, she's such a big character without her point of view anyways. I felt like we didn't need it. She's she's almost so clear on the surface. You can see everything. You can see her mind working through everyone else's point of view and I think that she's not necessarily clever enough to for people to misunderstand her so you agree with everyone's criticism (laughs) uh definitely with Madeline but I contrary to the characters I quite like her and I think that's because I feel quite sorry for her I think she's trying really hard and uh she's doing the best in the world that she has been born into and she's she's managed really well she's got really high despite herself and she's just trying desperately to cling on to that. So, yeah, I feel bad for her. She's not very nice, though. So No, no, she isn't. Um, but Eduardo is someone I wished I could have explored more because I think that there's a lot of softness and depth in that character. But I think that if he had had a chapter, it would have diluted Tonya's chapter. And it would have made it more difficult to really connect with her and what she's going through because he's easier to like. It's hard to go into too much detail about them, for, especially for listeners who haven't read the book. But it is interesting how much diversity of character I'm realizing there is in the characters you've created in a world where ostensibly everyone is playing in this elite part of the world anywhere, the same game. You know, you think they'd all be trying to do the same kind of face and the same kind of thing, but really they do stand out in different ways. So it's interesting, even human nature, it seems, will diversify even in a stultifying environment. I I think it's that desire to be the hero of the story, which means that you kind of have to stand out and be unique in a way. And I think that these people, they want to be they want to be seen as special. They want to be emulated. So they they want to see not the same diversity. They don't want to see diversity. They want to see people copying them. But in order for people to copy them, they have to be special, which means they have to be different. So everyone's trying these new uh, recipes for success. 
There's something else, actually. This is the, I've delved off my prepared questions now, but I'm thinking of all these different things that are really interesting. When a couple, I mean, just like having a child is a strategic decision to move up the ladder in some ways, coupling is also a strategic decision. And when, mm. when a, two people become a couple, they merge their name, too. So they're referred to in this kind of, you know, beginning of one person's name, end of the others or whatever, and they try to figure out what sounds best, which is in a way like trying to show something that's just the opposite of what's going on. I mean, it's like here we are merged in our names, but really we don't touch each other. And in although some relationships mm-hmm. may have some fondness and real connection, it seems like most don't necessarily at all. It's just about, okay, we'll meet at this point, this place, and take some pictures so everyone can see us together, but otherwise I don't need to talk to you or deal with you. So that's kind of an interesting external signaling that's very different than the underlying reality. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the desire to be seen as a single unit. And if you can control how your unit looks, it's much easier if you're combined into one rather than, you know, worrying about two different faces. So your couple face has to be a united face. What does this tell us about life today, the way we're living today? Where, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> what should we? What would you like to see that's different, other than we all wear plastic suits and stay very, very far away from you? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that everyone always thinks that everything is pretty bad at their time uh, in the world. Everyone's always like, "Oh, in the good old days," or maybe this could change and stuff. I think there's a lot of cool things happening at the moment. I think that life is pretty good in a lot of ways and it's pretty bad in a lot of ways. And I think that it's always been that way and we're always going to find things to complain about and things that we want to change. And it's the fact that we want to change things that makes things better. Uh, So I don't know exactly what I would pinpoint as that's wrong, that must change. But there's plenty to do better. Well said. I have to say I agree. I think that's a perfect <laughs> note on which to uh, end this wonderful interview. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been uh, really fun. I've been talking to Joma West about her debut novel, Face, which came out in August, at least uh, in North America, I think, from Tor.com. I don't know. Is it out worldwide? Is it out in England yet? No, it comes out in the UK in September, September 12th. Oh, great. Okay. Well, so around the time when this podcast actually is going to drop. So great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Rob Wolf. I've been your host for this episode of New Books and Science Fiction. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. Theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already, and feel free to leave a review, a nice review if you're in the mood for that, or you could just leave five stars if you're if you're so inclined. Thank you again so much for listening, and please buy books for yourself and your friends and take care of yourself and the people around you. And touch them if they want to be touched and don't touch them if they don't want to be touched and um, And try to keep your cats you know and your furniture regardless yes beautiful absolutely 100 (laughs) percent. they do not need to match your pets do not need to match your furniture until next time